You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. Rabbi Kahana was famous for saying the following. I would rather have a Jewish state that is hated by the whole world than an Auschwitz that's loved by it. And ever since October 7th, I think we can really feel that saying reverberating in full because we've experienced in this very short time, we've experienced being loved at Auschwitz after the massacre on October 7th. Everybody truly did love us. And then very quickly, we experienced being hated for being strong and having an army and bombing the enemy and being aggressors. And so now every Jew can decide you know, what he prefers. What do you like more, being loved at Auschwitz or being hated for being strong? Do you cringe when those IDF bombs are dropped and innocent civilians are killed? Do you mind being hated for that? Would you rather be loved at Auschwitz? What's more comfortable for you if you're, let's say, in the United States, sit in front of the TV, listen to the news reports? What's more comfortable for you? Viewing a massacre of Jews with all its gory details and being loved by all the news anchors, receiving accolades, sympathy. What do you like more, that? Or sit in front of your TV and hearing the world condemn you for fighting back and being strong. Well, if you're normal, you'd rather be hated by the world for being strong than being loved by the world at every Auschwitz. What's going on now is a birur, a sorting out for every Jew to find out where he stands. And, and he can also watch where the Gentile stands because there's a birur now, a, a sifting out. All those talking heads and their talk shows who seem to support Israel, what are they saying now? You thought someone like uh, Candace Owens was pro-Israel and you really liked her? Well, what do you think of it now? All those who play the moral equivalency card, that this is wrong and this is wrong, just like it's wrong what the Hamas did and it's wrong to take down posters of hostages, it's also wrong to bomb civilians in Aza. Anybody who says that is an idiot, but also doesn't really care about Israel's existence that much and really doesn't understand that the citizens of Aza are guilty, just like the Hamas is, because they're all part of a culture, an ideology, a community that's dedicated to the destruction of the Jewish people, the murder of the Jewish people. You don't have to be the one who shoots the missiles to be guilty. It's never everybody is shooting the missiles, but you support it. That's your guy. You're rooting for them. You're guilty. So this is time for Birur. Everybody's got to sort out who they are, where they stand. I saw a quick video of a guy with tattoos on, a, a Jewish guy, and he said that he never really felt Jewish. And all the stories that his mother told him about anti-Semitism and his father told him about anti-Semitism that they experienced, he never really related to it. He didn't identify with it. And now, though, seeing the anti-Semitism, which has come in the aftermath of this massacre, he says, I now, I feel Jewish now. I really do. I understand what they went through. I understand what my people have gone through. I'm part of a Jewish people and I can't escape it. And I'm proud of being Jewish, proud of being part of that people. Of course, it's much healthier to be proud of being a Jew 
not because of Auschwitz and massacres that we've endured, but for the beauty of Judaism, you know, the Torah, that would be a much better way, a much better path to find your Jewish identity. But if this is what makes you feel Jewish, because you got no choice, really, it's definitely better than nothing. You know, we say every morning, we say every morning, blessed are you, God, who didn't create me, a Gentile. That is, we're proud to be Jews and we're happy that we're the chosen people and we thank God for not creating us Gentiles. But you can also translate the Hebrew like this, that the Gentile didn't make me. Not that God didn't make me a Gentile, but that the Gentile didn't make me. You see, too many Jews feel Jewish only because the Gentile made him feel Jewish because of anti-Semitism, because of the Holocaust. The Holocaust made him feel Jewish. And so again, it's better than nothing, but it's not a healthy way to identify with your people. It would be much healthier if you felt Jewish because David slew Goliath, because the prophets in the Bible were all Jewish and righteous, and we are children of those prophets. We're descendants of the greatest men who ever walked on this earth, Isaiah and Yermiao. Why trade in that legacy? And what are you trading it for? For a pot of lentil beans, for the American dream. You're going to trade in your heritage for that? So if the rabid global anti-Semitism that's going around, if that makes Jews feel more Jewish, so be it. But it's not something that's really sustainable. Something sustainable is getting to the positive aspects of being Jewish, of learning a Jewish book, a Torah, a Mishnah, a Shulchan Aruch, learning Jewish history. And that will give you a positive Jewish identity. Okay, moving on now to the war in Gaza. The biggest problem with the IDF is because of their lack of faith, they're afraid to initiate anything. They're afraid to do something proactive. And you can't win if you're always responding. So obviously the one who initiates has the advantage of the one who is in a reactive mode. When you open up, when you initiate, you choose the time, you choose the place, the manner of the attack, and we're always in the reactive mode. And the Israeli government even brags about it. They say, if the Arabs are silent, we respond with silence. If they are violent, we respond with violence. You can't always respond. It's the guy who surprises. It's the guy who initiates. He's the one who has the advantage. That's how they got the advantage on us on October 7th. They're always initiating. They're always surprising. And we're always responding. Israel always wins when they initiate, when they surprise, when they go on the attack like in the Six-Day War. We carried out the preemptive strike. We surprised them, caught them with their pants down, and we won. Why? Because we showed faith. We didn't care what the world thought. We didn't say, oh, if we open fire, the world will be against us. No, no, we struck first. And when you do that, Hashem says, kolakavod, or the daring and tebi raid. We didn't negotiate. We didn't intervene. We didn't try to have other countries intervene. And so we go out and we initiate, we succeed. I'll give you another example, and there's not that many. When Menachem Begin, in the early 80s, he bombed the Iraqi nuclear plant, that was awesome. That was a preemptive attack on the Iraqi nuclear plant. The world was stunned. 
it was so successful. And whoa, there were condemnations, big time condemnations. Ronald Reagan, who we all love, right? He was not happy about it. If you read the book, The Prime Ministers, you get an inside look there how Reagan was really, really ticked off at Menachem Begin. He didn't talk to him for months. But Begin had the guts to do it. And when you have the guts, and when you show faith, and you're not afraid of the nations, and what they're going to say, and what they're going to say on the news, Hashem says, that's the way to do it. Now you're talking. And you know, after all those condemnations, when the Israelis bombed the nuclear reactor in Iraq, the worldwide condemnations, nonstop, and all the analysts had their say, and the New York Times had its say, everyone condemned us. But you know what? Time passed. People forgot. Something else took over the headlines. And in the meantime, there's no more nuclear reactor. Isn't that funny how it works? See how it works? The world screams. And then something else happens. In this case, you know what happened? Like a few days later, the Soviets shot down a KLM airplane and the news turned to that. And when the smoke cleared, no more nukes. So Israel always succeeds when they initiate the attack. We never do that anymore. We never catch the enemy off guard. They're catching us off guard. The element of surprise is always with them. Even the name of our army, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. Why defense forces? Is America called the um, American Defense Forces? It's the American army. We're the only ones. We got to have a defense. Only us. We have to have the word defense when relating to our army. And that's from the early history of the Haganah. That was the, the original Jewish army, the Haganah, which means defense. So we're always at the defense. When are you going to go on offense? Let's call ourselves the Israeli Offensive Forces, IOF, because everybody knows that the best defense is a good offense. When we go into Aza, we wait there a week or two before we go in. No surprise. They know we're coming. They can booby trap every building they want. They can, they can prepare for us. They can booby trap for us, plant mines. So we're always on the defensive and at a disadvantage. That's how Israel was almost destroyed in the Yom Kippur War. What happened in the Yom Kippur War? The very opposite of what happened in 1967. In the Yom Kippur War, the Arab armies were approaching. War was imminent. And you can see this a little bit in the movie Golda, right? It was pretty clear that the Arabs were going to go out in an all-out war, even though Moshe Dayan was stupid enough to think not. But Israel was afraid to make a preemptive strike. Why? Because Kissinger and Nixon were pressuring them. No, 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 don't do that. No, no, don't attack first. And Golda was afraid that the world would see that we opened up the war, that we started it. So the Arabs struck first. And hundreds and hundreds of Jewish soldiers were killed for that stupid decision not to open up on them in a preemptive strike. And again, the whole reason we didn't do it is what will the nation say? What will the United States do to us if we, God forbid, disobey them? And Kissinger was a self-hating Jew. He may go down in the books as a great diplomat and, and one of the most famous secretaries of state. But for the Jewish people and for Israel, he constantly pressured Israel. But the point is, you got to go out and attack them because the guy who attacks, he has the advantage. He has the element of surprise in his favor. But since we're always looking over our shoulders, what are the nations going to say? We rarely go on the attack unless we're going to do something meaningless like blow up some empty buildings. So we have to hope that Israel doesn't just react but becomes proactive in Gaza and doesn't sacrifice our boys on the altar of let's not make the world angry. I think that 
if I wanted this podcast to really go viral, I would start coming up with all kinds of conspiracy theories because people love conspiracy theories. There are conspiracy theories about everything. It's like nothing seems to be the way it seems. There's always some conspiracy hiding behind events and there are plenty of conspiracy theories floating around concerning about what happened on October 7th. After all, what, 3,000 terrorists enter Israel unimpeded? How was that not detected? And how could they murder and torture Jews for six, seven hours before there's an IDF response? Where was the IDF? And so plenty of podcasters and even rabbis are saying that Israel, they did it to themselves. It had to be. It, it had to be intentional. There's no way something like that wasn't designed somehow. Israel knew about it and they let it happen. It's kind of like what they say about the, the Twin Towers, 9-11, that America wanted those planes to knock down their own buildings. And by the same token, Israel wanted the Arab terrorists to murder Israelis. And people are saying that because, you know, when you put all the facts together, something seems kind of fishy. Now, what would be the motive for Israel to allow its own citizens to be slaughtered? Well, you could just say the government is just pure evil, Amalek, Erevrav, and their goal is to destroy the Jewish people because the Jewish government is, you know, Amalek and Erevrav in disguise. So there are theories, you know, like that floating around. Or another conspiracy theory, maybe Israel wanted the massacre to occur as an excuse or a pretense to enter Gaza because, you know, Israel needed a good reason to enter Gaza and destroy it and wipe out the Hamas. So Israel itself let the massacre happen so they could be justified to go into Gaza and bombs away. Now, I know people love that stuff. And I'm not saying that every conspiracy theory is wrong, but by the same token, not everything is a conspiracy. I also take the mainstream news with a grain of salt. But again, not everything is a conspiracy. As, as Sigmund Freud said, Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And so I think a more, I don't know, tenable explanation as to how the Israeli government let this happen. And besides that, if you're going to sanction a slaughter, why do it against your own? The people living in those communities were the biggest leftists in Israel. They love their Arabs. The Arabs were B'nai Bayit with them. I'll just give you an example. My daughter-in-law told me that before the Gush Katif dismantlement in the summer of 2005, she went with her family to join the uh, protesters and the Jewish residents of Gush Katif, and they were blocked from entering. So they tried to enter one of the kibbutzim near Gaza in order to rest and regroup. And when the kibbutzim saw that they were coming to protest the Israeli government's evacuation of the Jews in Gush Katif, they didn't allow them to enter their kibbutz. That's how opposed they were to the right-wingers who were opposing the dismantlement of the Gush Katif communities, which was right, right under their nose. Okay, but that's not the point here. The point here is, how did it happen? If it wasn't a grand conspiracy that Israel did to themselves, and I know conspiracies are a lot more intriguing, right? Everybody feels they're in a Mel Gibson movie or something. But I think there's an explanation, well, reasonable, to explain what happened. And it's not me. There are real experts on the Arab culture, on the Arabs in Israel, on the Hamas. You know, important Jews like Tzvi Cheskeli, Dr. Michael Ben-Ari. These guys are high caliber. They've been studying the Hamas for years. Tzvi Cheskel even infiltrated these groups. And they've been warning over and over again how the IDF command 
is unprepared, that they don't grasp what the Hamas is all about, what Islam is. They don't chop the culture. One of the reasons is because they're constantly dealing with the Hamas on a routine level. They're negotiating with them about giving them electricity and water, and they give them funds, and they allow the Gazans to work in Israel. They're in contact with them. They have a relationship with them. So even though they know the Hamas is the enemy, they're thinking they can manage it, you know, by giving them things. They're thinking the Hamas, they won't do anything too rash. After all, they're getting stuff from us. So that's the problem, the mindset. They can't fathom that they're dealing with people who want to slaughter them because they're applying their Western European values and it doesn't work with these Arabs. They're acting like they're in the Midwest, but we're dealing here in the Middle East. We're dealing with a different mindset. So while the Israelis are eating sushi in posh restaurants, the Arabs are eating hummus. The Israelis are into ballet and culture and jazz and woke, and the Arabs are into chopping babies' heads off. And by the way, America before 9-11 was the same way. They had no idea what the Arab was. You know, the wasps in the FBI had no understanding of Islam and the Arab mentality. And suddenly, only after 9-11, they said, hey, we got an Arab problem in America. But it was there for a long time already. Back in 1993, there was a bombing at the Twin Towers. So going back to the Israeli leadership, they're, just, they're always just looking to keep the status quo, kick the can, and they try to manage the enemy. So they're lax. They're asleep at the wheel. The idea of soldiers, the girls who were watching the cameras, they were telling their superiors for weeks that they see Arabs lining up at the Gaza Gate. Looks like they're planning something. Looks like they can just burst through at any moment. And their superiors told them, no, it's nothing, it's nothing. So you can say, yeah, that's the conspiracy. They were in on it. They really wanted the Arabs to penetrate the gates and kill Jews. Or you could say, it's just gross negligence and incompetence. In the Yom Kippur War, we were also caught by surprise. Moshe Dayan was saying the same thing. He's saying, nah, the Arabs are just doing a targil, you know, a military exercise. They're not lining up outside our borders to attack us. So was that also a conspiracy? That we wanted to suffer losses in the Yom Kippur War so that we'd be justified to march into Damascus? So I'm not saying there's never a conspiracy and you have to always believe you know, the mainstream news, but a lot of times it's no grand conspiracy. It's no grand design, but a matter of incompetence. Let me tell you a story that happened to us in uh, about 1995. We were in Tapuach here in the Shomron and it was Purim. And we had a Purim party, the Yeshiva. And the Yeshiva was led by Rabbi Binyamin Zef Kahana then. And we decided to do something that would convey a message to Am Yisrael. And what did we decide to do? We're going to celebrate Purim in the Arab village next to us. It's right across from Ariel. The village is called Kifal Harith. It's where Joshua is buried. Yeshua ben Nun is buried there. The Arabs built a mosque over it, as usual. And Binyamin Kahana decided it would be a good idea to waltz into the Arab village and give them a mishloch menot. What is mishloch menot? Well, well, on Purim, you're supposed to give your fellow Jew mishloch menot. It's one of the laws of Purim. Each Jew gives, gives his neighbor some food items. So we decided we're going to give mishloch menot in this Arab village to the Arabs too. And of course, it's a little different than what you give Meshulach Menot to Jews. In this case, it doesn't have to be food. It could be other things. Anyway, the idea was to send a message to Am Yisrael 
that these Arabs are our enemies. We shouldn't fear them. But vice versa, they should fear us in this Arab village. So what happened was Benjamin invited the media because he wanted coverage so the thing would be publicized and the message could get out. Now, of course, eventually the police got word of it too, that we were going to be there. And so now they're also going to be there. So we figured we'll probably get stopped by the entrance, but let's go anyway. And even if they stop us, the media will be there and our message will get out a little bit. Okay, so we arrived at the entrance of the Arab village, Kifal Harris, and nobody was there except for a couple of journalists and photographers. And since there were no police there, we just walked right into the village and we walked through the village and it was like something out of the Wild West. You have like 20 tough guys walking through this village and the Arabs, they're not used to that. And so you see them closing their windows and closing their shutters. The streets are abandoned. It was like a ghost town. They're hunkering down in their houses. And we continued walking around freely. Of course, most of the guys were a little bit drunk, so they were feeling a little too good, a little too uninhibited, a little too confident. And plus, we had our Purim disguises. You know, guys had silly hats on and things like that. So we felt kind of anonymous, which also adds to making you more courageous. And some of the guys went into the mosque and the media is filming this. As a matter of fact, the headline the next day in the Israeli newspaper, Yediot Acharot, was Kahanists enter Arab village. And the front page picture is a guy with a Kahana shirt. Anyway, why am I telling you this story? Because where were the cops? We were there for too long. We were there for a while and we got so overconfident and complacent as if nobody's ever going to come. So we started hanging out a little too long and you don't want to do that. You got to be smart. But it seemed like the cops and the IDF soldiers, they weren't coming after us. And so people just lingered there. Plus, of course, we're a little intoxicated, feeling invincible, and we're pretty stupid. Finally, after like an hour or two, the police finally came and we scattered. Everybody went their own way. Anyway, where am I going with this? The question I'm asking is, Where were the police all this time? You know where they were? They went to the wrong village. You see, there's another Arab village next to Kifal Harris, and they went there instead of the village we were in. So we're talking here, Keystone Cops. The Keystone Cops. So is that a conspiracy? It's not a conspiracy that's being planned out. It's just negligence and incompetence. It's not that they know what they're doing. It's the opposite. They have no idea what they're doing. And so if there's some event that seems fishy, it's hard to explain. You have to be prudent. Prudence, you have to take each matzav, each event on its own merits. For instance, I'm sure the Kennedy assassination was a conspiracy. How do I know? Well, Oswald got shot. Ruby got shot. A very famous journalist named Dorothy Kilgallen, who declared on public TV that she has an exclusive interview with Jack Ruby that's going to blow the case wide open. She was also found dead the next day. So I'm not saying there's no conspiracies, but not everything's a conspiracy. Too many people make an ideology out of it. And did you ever notice that those who espouse the conspiracy theories, for them, everything is a conspiracy? 9-11, landing on the moon. So prudence, my fellow Jew, prudence. Judge each event on its own facts and merits. Moving on to the Pasha Chivua. This Peshabat we read, Pasha Chayi Sarah, and it opens up that Sarah passes away 
And Rashi tells us that this opening verse where Sarah passes away, it comes immediately after the Akedah Yitzchak. That's how we ended the last Pasha, where Isaac was binded and almost sacrificed by Abraham at the last second. And right after that episode, we have Sarah passing away. And Rashi says they're linked together because when Avraham and Isaac left that morning, Sarah found out that Abraham was on his way to slaughter his son. She had no idea what was going to happen. And from the pressure and the stress, her neshama left her. What we'd say today, she got a heart attack from it. And you can ask the question, Sarah was a very strong-willed, courageous woman, a lot of times more than Abraham. So how did the pressure get to her and it didn't get to Abraham in the same way? That is, Abraham went through with it. He didn't seem to suffer too much stress and anguish about it. He did what he had to do. And the answer is that when you're a spectator from afar, like Sarah was, and you don't really know what's going on, but you hear about it, it's much worse that way because you have no control of the situation and your imagination could just run wild and you feel helpless. On the other hand, Abraham, yeah, it's tough for him too, but he's in control. He's living it. He's not just hearing about it. So when you're living it and participating it, that's a lot less stressful. And that's why every Jew has to make Aliyah. And I'll tell you why. When you're outside of Israel, watching the news, listening to it, and the news is always about Israel, it's very stressful. And you eat your heart out. You see the bias in it. You feel helpless. It's hard to sleep at night. It's in your mind all the time. You know why? Because you feel you can't do anything about it. See, it's the helplessness. Being far away from it, being a spectator to it is much worse. But if you live in Israel, if you're here and you're participating in it and you're controlling your destiny a little bit, at least, it's not stressful at all. You're not listening to the news. You're living the news. Even better, you're making the news. You know, we say every morning that Hashem is Oseh Chadashot. He makes the news. Well, you know what? Come to Israel and make the news. Don't just listen to the news or watch the news. What a horrible way to live. So you come to Israel even during wartime and you'll see you'll be a lot less upset, a lot less stressed out and you'll let all those anti-Semites eat their hearts out, making Israel stronger. So that's my Aliyah pitch for this week and I'll be back next week. Same time, same station. Don't forget to tune into Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. You can Google that. It's a podcast in the Tanakh. We bring the stories of Tanakh alive with the Jewish commentaries, with the Midrashim. If you learn Tanakh properly, you can't go wrong because it's got everything. It's got adventure. It's got romance. It's got violence. It's got drama. So don't forget to check that out. And you can also see some of my writings on my uh, Facebook page, Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes page on Facebook. There, There I let off steam on all kinds of subjects. Plus, you'll get my Bible class every week. So that's it for me.